Just at dusk, that evening, I had gone upstairs and put on my muslin gown. I had been busy all day, attending to the strawberry preserving, for Mary Sloan could not be trusted with that, and I was a little tired, and thought it was hardly worth while to change my dress, especially since there was nobody to see or care since Hester was gone. Mary Sloan did not count, but I did it, because Hester would have cared if she had been here. She always liked to see me neat and dainty. So, although I was tired and sick at heart, I put on my pale blue muslin and dressed my hair. At first I did my hair up in a way I had always liked, but had seldom worn, because Hester had disapproved of it. It became me, but I suddenly felt as if it were disloyal to her, so I took the puffs down again and arranged my hair in the plain, old-fashioned way she had liked. My hair— though it had a good many grey threads in it, was thick and long and brown still. But that did not matter. Nothing mattered, since Hester was dead, and I had sent Hugh Blair away for the second time. The Newbridge people all wondered why I had not put on mourning for Hester. I did not tell them it was because Hester had asked me not to. Hester had never approved of mourning. She said that if the heart did not mourn, crape would not mend matters and if it did there was no need of the external trappings of a woe she told me calmly the night before she died to go on wearing my pretty dresses just as i had always worn them and to make no difference in my outward life because of her going i know there will be a difference in your inward life she said wistfully and oh there was but sometimes i wandered uneasily feeling almost conscience-stricken whether it was wholly because hester had left me whether it were not partly because, for a second time, I had shut the door of my heart in the face of love at her bidding. When I had dressed I went downstairs to the front door, and sat on the sandstone steps under the arch of the Virginia Creeper. I was all alone, for Mary Sloane had gone to Avonlea. It was a beautiful night. The full moon was just rising over the wooden hills, and her light fell through the poplars into the garden before me. Through an open corner on the western side I saw the sky all silvery blue in the afterlight. The garden was very beautiful just then, for it was the time of the roses, and ours were all out. So many of them. Great pink and red and white and yellow roses. Hester had loved roses, and could never have enough of them. Her favourite bush was growing by the steps, all gloried over with blossoms. White, with pale pink hearts. I gathered a cluster and pinned it loosely on my breast. But my eyes filled as I did so. I felt so very, very desolate. I was all alone, and it was bitter. The roses, much as I loved them, could not give me sufficient companionship. I wanted the clasp of a human hand, and the love-light in human eyes. And then I felt thinking of Hugh, though I tried not to. I had always lived alone with Hester. I did not remember our parents, who had died in my babyhood. Hester was fifteen years older than me, and she had always seemed more like a mother than a sister. She had been very good to me and had never denied me anything I wanted, save the one thing that mattered. I was twenty-five before I ever had a lover. This was not, I think, because I was more unattractive than other women. The Merediths had always been the big family of Newbridge. The rest of the people looked up to us, because we were the granddaughters of old Squire Meredith. 
the Newbridge young men would have thought it no use to try and woo a Meredith. I had not a great deal of family pride, as perhaps I should be ashamed to confess. I found our exalted position very lonely, and cared more for the simple joys of friendship and companionship which other girls had. But Hester possessed it in a double measure. She never allowed me to associate on a level of equality with the young people of Newbridge. We must be very nice and kind and affable to them. Noblesse oblige, as it were. But we must never forget that we were Merediths. When I was twenty-five, Hugh Blair came to Newbridge, having bought a farm near the village. He was a stranger, from lower Carmody, and so was not imbued with any preconceptions of Meredith superiority. In his eyes I was just a girl like others, a girl to be wooed and won by any man of clean life and honest heart. I met him at a little Sunday-school picnic over at Avonlea, which I attended because of my class. I thought him very handsome and manly. He talked to me a great deal, and at last he drove me home. The next Sunday evening he walked up from church with me. Hester was away, or, of course, this would never have happened. She had gone for a month's visit to distant friends. In that month I lived a lifetime. Hugh Blair courted me as the other girls in Newbridge were courted. He took me out driving and came to see me in the evenings, which we spent for the most part in the garden. I did not like the stately gloom and formality of our old Meredith parlour, and Hugh never seemed to feel at ease there. His broad shoulders and hearty laughter were oddly out of place among our faded, all-maidish furnishings. Mary Sloane was very much pleased at Hugh's visit. She had always resented the fact that I had never had a bow, seeming to think it reflected some slight or disparagement upon me. She did all she could to encourage him. But when Hester returned and found out about Hugh, she was very angry, and grieved, which hurt me far more. She told me that I had forgotten myself, and that Hugh's visits must cease. I had never been afraid of Hester before, but I was afraid of her then. I yielded. Perhaps it was very weak of me, but then I was always weak. I think that was why Hugh's strain had appealed so to me. I needed love and protection. Hester, strong and self-sufficient, had never felt such a need. She could not understand. Oh, how contemptuous she was! I told Hugh timidly that Hester did not approve of our friendship, and that it must end. He took it quietly enough, and went away. I thought he did not care much, and the thought selfishly made my own heart ache worse. I was very unhappy for a long time, but I tried not to let Hester see it, and I don't think she did. She was not very discerning in some things. After a time I got over it. That is, the heartache ceased to ache all the time. But things were never quite the same again. Life always seemed rather dreary and empty, in spite of Hester and my roses and my Sunday school. I supposed that Hugh Blair would find him a wife elsewhere, but he did not. The years went by and we never met, although I saw him often at church. At such times Hester always watched me very closely, but there was no need of her to do so. Hugh made no attempt to meet me, or speak with me, and I would not have permitted it if he had. But my heart always yearned after him. I was selfishly glad he had not married, because if he had I could not have thought and dreamed of him. It would have been wrong. 
Perhaps, as it was, it was foolish, but it seemed to me that I must have something, if only foolish dreams, to fill my life. At first there was only pain in the thought of him, but afterwards a faint, misty little pleasure crept in like a mirage from a land of lost delight. Ten years slipped away thus, and then Hester died. Her illness was sudden and short, but before she died she asked me to promise that I would never marry Hugh Blair. She had not mentioned his name for years. I thought she had forgotten all about him. "'Oh, dear sister, is there any need for such a promise?' I asked, weeping. "'Hugh Blair does not want to marry me now. He never will again.' "'He has never married. He has not forgotten you,' she said fiercely. "'I could not rest in my grave if I thought you would disgrace your family by marrying beneath you. Promise me, Margaret.' "'I promised.' I would have promised anything in my power to make her dying pillow easier. Besides, what did it matter? I was sure that she would never think of me again. She smiled when she heard me, and pressed my hand. Good little sister. That is right. You were always a good girl, Margaret, good and obedient, though a little sentimental and foolish in some ways. You are like our mother. She was always weak and loving. I took after the Merediths. She did indeed. Even in her coffin her dark, handsome features preserved their expression of pride and determination. Somehow that last look of her dead face remained in my memory, blotting out the real affection and gentleness which her living face had almost always shown me. This distressed me, but I could not help it. I wished to think of her as kind and loving, but I could remember only the pride and coldness with which she had crushed out my newborn happiness. Yet I felt no anger or resentment towards her for what she had done. I knew she had meant it for the best, my best. It was only that she was mistaken. And then, a month after she had died, Hugh Blair came to me and asked me to be his wife. He said he had always loved me and could never love any other woman. All my old love for him reawakened. I wanted to say yes, to feel his strong arms about me, and the warmth of his love enfolding and guarding me. In my weakness I yearned for his strength. But there was my promise to Hester, that promise given by her deathbed. I could not break it, and I told him so. It was the hardest thing I had ever done. He did not go away quietly this time. He pleaded and reasoned and reproached. Every word of his hurt me like a knife thrust. But I could not break my promise to the dead. If Hester had been living I could have braved her wrath and her estrangement and gone with him. But she was dead and I could not do it. Finally he went away in grief and anger. That was three weeks ago, and now I sat alone in the moonlit rose garden and wept for him. But after a time my tears dried, and a very strange feeling came over me. I felt calm and happy, as if some wonderful love and tenderness were very near me. And now comes the strange part of my story, the part which will not, I suppose, be believed. If it were not for one thing, I think I should hardly believe it myself. I should feel tempted to think I had dreamed it. But because of that one thing I know it was real. The night was very calm and still. Not a breath of wind stirred. The moonshine was the brightest I had ever seen. In the middle of the garden, where the shadow of the poplars did not fall, it was almost as bright as day. One could have read fine print. There was still a little rose-glow in the west and over the airy boughs of the tall poplars one or two large bright stars were shining. 
the air was sweet with a hush of dreams, and the world was so lovely that I held my breath over its beauty. Then, all at once, down at the far end of the garden, I saw a woman walking. I thought at first that it must be Mary Sloane, but, as she crossed the moonlit path, I saw it was not our old servant's stout, homely figure. This woman was tall and erect. Although no suspicion of the truth came to me, something about her reminded me of Hester. Even so had Hester liked to wander about the garden in the twilight. I had seen her thus a thousand times. I wondered who the woman could be. Some neighbour, of course. But what a strange way for her to come! She walked up the garden slowly in the poplar shade. Now and then she stopped, as if to caress a flower, but she plucked none. Halfway up, she out in the moonlight, and walked across the plot of grass in the centre of the garden. My heart gave a great throb, and I stood up. She was quite near to me now, and I saw that it was Hester. I can hardly say just what my feelings were at this moment. I know that I was not surprised. I was frightened, and yet I was not frightened. Something in me shrank back in a sickening terror, but I, the real I, was not frightened. I knew that this was my sister, and that there could be no reason why I should be frightened of her, because she loved me still, as she had always done. Further than this I was not conscious of any coherent thought, either of wonder or attempt at reasoning. Hester paused when she came to within a few steps of me. In the moonlight I saw her face quite plainly. It wore an expression I had never before seen on it. A humble, wistful, tender look. Often in life Hester had looked lovingly, even tenderly, upon me, but always, as it were, through a mask of pride and sternness. This was gone now, and I felt nearer to her than ever before. I knew suddenly that she understood me. And then the half-conscious awe and terror some part of me had felt vanished and I only realized that Hester was there, and that there was no terrible gulf of change between us. Hester beckoned to me and said, Come. I stood up and followed her out of the garden. We walked side by side down our lane, under the willows and out to the road, which lay long and still in that bright, calm moonshine. I felt as if I were in a dream, moving at the bidding of a will not my own, which I could not have disputed, even if I had wished to do so. But I did not wish it. I had only the feeling of a strange, boundless content. We went down the road between the growth of a young fir that bordered it. I smelled their balsam as we passed, and noticed how clearly and darkly their pointed tops came out against the sky. I heard the tread of my own feet on little twigs and plants in our way, and the trail of my dress over the grass. But Hester moved noiselessly. Then we went through the avenue, that stretch of road under the apple trees that Anne Shirley, over at Avonlea, calls the White Way of Delight. It was almost dark here, and yet I could see Hester's face just as plainly as if the moon were shining on it. And whenever I looked at her, she was always looking at me with that strangely gentle smile on her lips. Just as we passed out of the avenue, James Trent overtook us, driving. It seems to me that our feelings at a given moment are seldom what we would expect them to be. I simply felt annoyed that James Trent, the most notorious gossip in Newbridge, should have seen me walking with Hester. In a flash I anticipated all the annoyance of it. He would talk of the matter far and wide. But James Trent merely nodded and called out, Howdy, Miss Margaret. 
Taking a moonlight stroll by yourself? Lovely night, ain't it? Just then his horse suddenly swerved, as if startled, and broke into a gallop. They whirled around the curve of the road in an instant. I felt relieved, but puzzled. James Trent had not seen Hester. Down over the hill was Hugh Blair's place. When we came to it, Hester turned in at the gate. Then, for the first time, I understood why she had come back, and a blinding flash of joy broke over my soul. I stopped and looked at her. Her deep eyes gazed into mine, but she did not speak. We went on. Hugh's house lay before us in the moonlight, grown over by a tangle of vines. His garden was on our right, a quaint spot full of old-fashioned flowers growing in a sort of disorderly sweetness. I trod on a bed of mint, and the spice of it floated up to me like the incense of some strange, sacred, solemn ceremonial. I felt unspeakably happy and blessed. When we came to the door, Hester said, Knock, Margaret. I rapped gently. In a moment, Hugh opened it. Then that happened with which, in after days, I was to know that this strange thing was no dream or fancy of mine. Hugh looked not at me, but past me. Hester! He exclaimed, with a human fear and horror in his voice. He leaned against the doorpost, the big, strong fellow trembling from head to foot. I have learned, said Hester, that nothing matters in all God's universe except love. There is no pride where I have been, and no false ideals. Hugh and I looked into each other's eyes, wondering, and then we knew that we were alone. End of story seven.